Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Multi-State Monday podcast here with with Susan Gorey and Alejandro Perez, my colleagues. This is Lucas Asper, one of the co-chairs of the Multi-State Practice Group here at Ogletree, and we are excited to bring you this edition of the Multi-State Monday podcast to dig into some more of the multi-jurisdictional type issues that we see clients and employers challenged by and struggling with on a day-to-day basis and hopefully give you some good information that will be helpful as you deal with those issues. So just before we get started, Susan, Alejandro, why don't you say hello? Hi, everybody. And what I was discussing with Lucas and Alejandro was how could we capture this in an exciting way with regard to, as Lucas mentioned, the repeated and problematic areas that seem to come up frequently for employers. So we like to consider these our Groundhog Day issues in multi-state compliance. Yeah, and uh, hello everyone. Thank you for having me. Um, Happy to be here. This is Alejandro. I guess it really is Groundhog Day for me because I was in HR prior to becoming an attorney. So I live this, I've been living the same questions for a long time. And I did a little research on, on our auspicious holiday that's our, that's our theme. And, um, uh, you know, our prognosticator extraordinaire, Puxatani Phil, is only right 39% of the time. So hopefully we'll give you some good advice and then uh, the actual groundhog itself. Well, so well, right. with that, we're going to do our best to beat that rate, Alejandro. I, I promise that, at least as far as the information we provide. And, and you're right, I hope that clients get it right at a better stint, too. But but <laughs> let's jump right in. The way we've broken down these kind of big picture Groundhog Day type issues somewhat tracks the life cycle of employment. And so let's get started with the logical starting point of onboarding. What what regularly recurring multi-jurisdictional compliance issues are you seeing companies deal with in, in, in the onboarding area, Alejandra? Sure. So, of course, states vary greatly in vastly in what the requirements are when onboarding. One of the things that I, that I see come up pretty often is pay transparency, right? Some states require or municipalities require pay transparency. Um, some do not. Uh, but I've also been um, lately done quite a bit of litigation with Equal Pay Act claims. So with regards to pay transparency, it's first of all important for a multi-state employer to understand that uh, the laws that apply to them, right? So for example, in Nevada, employers have to disclose the salary ranges to applicants who've completed an interview for the position. Um, So when do you make that public? What do you have to do to advance or to comply with the law with regards to those situations? Colorado has a very vast law that applies to not only um, in-state employers, but out-of-state employers as well. Um, you have to include pay ranges and job postings and give formal notice and opportunities for promotion to the, your internal employees. So pay attention to those things. That is one of these issues that is ever-evolving, and, um, and we're seeing people 
get it right and get it wrong because it's changing so fast and because we see these laws developing so quickly. I mean, I'm in South Carolina, generally thought of as one of the more employer-friendly states in the country. And two years ago, our state legislature, some of our state legislators proposed what would have been the most expansive pay transparency law in the country. And so it just shows you this is on everyone's radar right now. And so that's a great starting point. So that's that's when we're even posting jobs a lot of times. What about once we get to the application and we start doing some screening on folks? What multi-state issues are you seeing there? Of course, was start looking at what you can ask and what you cannot ask particularly something that we've seen a lot of advance over the last 10 years, I'd say, is the whole ban the box initiative, right? When can you ask someone if they've committed a crime? Does it have to be job related? I think that is very important to understand the application process. And of course, just the compliance from state to state and federal laws that require certain information to be included or not included in applications. Um, that's really low hanging fruit because it can be an applicant who has no intention of working there. We've seen that you know people uh, filing claims or saying you know they've asked me this in an application or if they just do not receive the job for whatever reason, then the next thing you know, they're filing a claim because of something that was in a job application. So it's really low hanging fruit for, for potential claimants and something that really needs to, because it's something that's exposed externally to everyone who wants to apply, right? So you want to be very careful as to what information you have on there. Yeah, and so once somebody has applied and and now we're to that step of doing a background check, I'll, I'll kind of kick off this one by saying, I don't know that there is, there are many laws in our employment law world that vary more wildly from state to state than background check laws in terms of what notices to provide, what authorizations you have to receive, what can be included, what can't be included. And this is another one of those, I loved the phrase that you used a minute ago, Alejandro, but it's low-hanging fruit because it is such a hyper-technical issue. And if you get it right, you get it right. And if you get it wrong, you get it wrong. And if you get it wrong, even with the best intentions, there's a lot of exposure potentially out there. What's your experience on that, Alejandro? Same, you know, it's like, you know, you have to, you know, states vary so greatly with, can you do a seven-year background check? Can you do a 10-year background check? Is there a minimum salary required to do a background check, right? So if you don't get that precise, you could be looking at some serious issues. Yeah, and in class actions, this is one of those where unless and until the law changes, this is a regular type of class action that we see in the employment law space. And I mean, as I said earlier, hyper-technical. And so I've seen these cases where it, it is truly just the inclusion of one sentence on a form leads to a big settlement in a class action case. When we're talking about these onboarding type things, new hire notices, same type of issue, less from a litigation risk perspective, but we don't know because a lot of states are still developing new hire notices in terms of what's required and what you have to educate employees on. If it's once we've hired somebody, we got to let them know about leave obligations, minimum wage, discrimination. Maybe those are built into your policies. Maybe they're in a poster or maybe you actually hand something to an employee. What your requirements are are going to vary state by state. And so this big picture bucket of onboarding, we won't spend time on it because it could obviously be a podcast on its own, but drug testing is another one. I mean, how we drug test, who we drug test, when we drug test, what we test for, 
all of that can change based on a state-by-state -state approach. So, so big issue in terms of onboarding. What, what are the other big picture, kind of big buckets of multi-jurisdictional compliance issues that come immediately to mind for you, Alejandro or Susan? Well, before we move on, I just wanted to do um, one quick note about drug testing, which leads into also the leaves, which is one of the big issues um, I would consider a Groundhog Day issue. Drug testing is very similar to leaves in that, and obviously background checks too, in that what works in a state in one jurisdiction may not work in another jurisdiction like just a few miles away. For example, for drug testing, I know there's various local mandates about what you can and can do for drug testing. I believe in several um, jurisdictions in Colorado, but yet the state may have lesser or different restrictions, similar to leave. Paid sick leave, obviously we have about 16 states now, would you say, Lucas? F 15 states plus the District of Columbia on a on a statewide basis right. have paid sick leave laws, right. and that does not include the, the numerous California. localities that right. have paid sick leave requirements. And so, you know, Pennsylvania is a great example where in Pennsylvania, they only have three jurisdictions with paid sick leave requirements, Philadelphia, Allegheny County, and Pittsburgh. Other than that, in Pennsylvania, if you don't live in those jurisdictions, you don't are not mandated out of sick leave. Yeah, no, that's a great example, Susan. And I mean, New Mexico is another one where you have statewide law, and then you have the Bernadillo County law that that is is different. And 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 we got to be aware of how it varies depending on where you are. Montgomery County, Maryland versus Maryland yes. statewide. So many examples where where you got to make sure you know where your employees are and and where they're going to be working in today's remote work driven world where an employee is performing work will absolutely influence what laws you have to comply with. And that includes paid sick leave. That includes paid and unpaid family leave, which is another big piece of the leave puzzle. Um, I mean, Susan, you work on a lot of employer policies and handbooks. I do the same. Alejandro, I believe you do as well. This is one of the biggest bugaboos when you talk about creating multi-state compliant policies for employers is figuring out how to do leave in a way that is both most efficient and also most compliant. What, what do y'all think about that? You know, I, I love working on handbooks and Susan and I work together frequently on those. Putting together a compliant sick leave and family leave policy that, that is compliant with everywhere because they are, the statutes are so hyper-technical. And, and the um, risk is so great if you get it wrong, right? And every state has its own nuances and it's, it's the own um, little, little aspects that you have to adhere to that uh, could, could go awry with any second. That's right. And building out your policies in a way to where we can double dip as much as possible to where yes. things are running concurrently with each other. So that way folks, employees are not able to unfairly stack leaves on top of each other. And, and that applies to a whole variety, but also making sure we know when they don't stack on top. I mean, like if you're in California and you have pregnancy disability leave, you get pregnancy disability leave, which is not covered by the California Family Rights Act, which is their version of the FMLA. 
but it is running concurrently with the federal FMLA. It's knowing how to put those pieces of the puzzle together, both from a policy perspective and a leave administration perspective. Colorado, one example, their, their family leave covers domestic partners. The federal FMLA does not. And, and so because of that, what you're left with is a possibility of somebody maxing out their Colorado family leave for that type of care provision, which is absolutely covered under Colorado law. But then you still have 12 weeks of FMLA or up to 26, depending, that has never been touched because that wasn't FMLA if that's not a spouse. And so it's understanding all of those nuances. And similar to that, too, is protective covenants. Absolutely. Now, protective covenants is one of the areas that I do a good bit of work in. And and this, this is one that we can't spend a ton of time on because it is so complex. But big picture issues, number one, we got to figure out can we even have the covenant that we want to have in the state that we're in? We're seeing states all over the country develop and modify their laws on this issue to incorporate things like minimum salary requirements, to incorporate things like job category requirements for if and when you can even ask an employee to sign this type of agreement. California has recently passed the law that requires you as of Valentine's Day to push out a notice to employees that, that whatever non-compete you may have had with them is no longer enforceable and will not be enforced. Just, just an easy example of how we're seeing these covenant issues continue to evolve. Even once we decide that, that we're going to have a covenant, make sure that we are intentional about the scope of the covenant and the consideration we're offering in exchange for the covenant aligning with state law, because that's going to differ depending on where you are. Two years may, may be okay in one jurisdiction, but 12 months is the most you can ask for in this one. Giving somebody continued employment may be good enough in terms of what you can do for consideration in one jurisdiction does not work in a number of other jurisdictions. That, that's covenants. We, we touched on leave. We touched on onboarding. What about wage and hour? I mean, what are the big Groundhog Day wage and hour issues we see from a multi-jurisdictional perspective? Misclassification. Wouldn't you agree, Alejandro? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, classification is, there's not a ton of variation. Some states are unique, though. And so it's knowing where those unique differences lie, for sure. Even more kind of foundational than that, I would say minimum wage. We're yes. seeing changes in state required minimum wage, and here again, even municipal required minimum wage all over the country. And it's fascinating to look at because when you look at where we're at from a minimum wage perspective across the country, many, many jurisdictions are either at or above that $15 an hour threshold. Five years ago, we were seeing a federal push for and we continue hearing rumblings about changing the minimum wage on a federal level. Well, it hasn't happened. So states and municipalities are stepping into that void and they're doing it and they're pushing out new minimum wages. That is absolutely low hanging fruit. In that same vein, minimum salary requirements, yeah. those are different. Yeah. I mean, federally, we know what the Department of Labor says. We know what their proposal is in terms of what may come into come into play soon. But but it's set across the country. 
That is not the case when you start talking about state requirements. Many are tied to like a multiple of minimum wage. And so as minimum wage goes up in that state, the minimum salary level goes up. The example I often give is the state of Washington. But there's an automatic escalator for their minimum wage in a way that will result by, I think it's 2026, their guaranteed minimum salary for exempt workers being over $80,000 a year. And, and that's for all exempt workers. It's not just for certain categories or highly compensated type folks. And meal and rest breaks, same issue. Those haven't changed a lot in recent years, but absolutely do have unique requirements. And we see litigation on this issue where people are suing employers who are not complying with meal and rest break requirements. To that point, too, I see a lot of it because everyone's like, oh, we comply with federal law. It's like, and they don't think about the state and or jurisdictional requirements. So they make the assumption that they're they're good to go when in reality, they're not, so, which is very similar to remote workers. Susan, that's right. Remote work uh, is, is, a, is a huge general category, we'll say it that way, because it overlaps with everything we've already been talking about. Right. Um, It's it's recognizing in this new remote work driven economy that we are now all living and working in that as employers hire employees to work elsewhere, somewhere other than where they do business, we've got to be ready to comply with the law of elsewhere. And so you have operations in only Texas, but you decide you want to hire the most qualified tech engineers for some aspect of your business, and those folks just happen to be scattered across the country. Well, we are now committing to comply with the laws of where those folks are living and working in addition to home base in Texas. I'm going to just touch on a couple of the remote work specific issues we see the most, because remember, everything we just talked about with onboarding, with leave, with wage and hour, with protective covenants, That applies to our remote work compliance as well. But here's a couple unique ones that we do see come up often. Tax issues, first of all. When you hire that employee to work in the state of Illinois, and it's the first time you've ever had somebody working in the state of Illinois, you have to figure out when do we, if and when we have to register with the state to do business in the state of Illinois if and when and at what point we need to start making contributions to their unemployment system, payroll tax issues, all of these things that I'm not a tax lawyer and it is way above my pay grade because they're complicated. And it's something that if you get audited, you don't want to have wrong because you can get hit not just with noncompliance payments, but also penalties and fines and things like that that can add up very quickly. Well, and to that point when advising about remote work i always make sure to tell them that there might be three separate registrations some states have them joined together um department of revenue and or if you file with the state secretary of state you're good others do not that's a great example of things that that folks probably just often aren't contemplating when they hire that one-off worker in another jurisdiction Um, Another big remote work issue, and I used Illinois intentionally because of this, is expense reimbursement issues. Uh, When you hire that person in the state of Illinois, again, you're a Texas employer, we're, we're using this hypothetical. In Texas, there are no specific laws that talk about 
whether you have to reimburse your employees for business-related expenses and to what extent, for what types of things. But there are a number of states, it's about 10 or 11 states, that do have specific requirements when it comes to expense reimbursement. Illinois is one of those. If you have a remote employee working in Illinois, we need to think about, are we paying some sort of stipend for home internet, for their cell phone? may not be legally required under the circumstances, but we need to at least think through those. The one place where I can all but guarantee you it's going to be required is California. So so remote work challenges is, is a big one. The, the sixth one that I had on my list and, and will kind of get us to the end of the employment life cycle is termination. So Alejandro, I'll come back to you with this. Where, where are you seeing the biggest multi-jurisdictional issues when we get to the end of the relationship? Sure. One of the big things I see are, in addition to the notices that have to be required, which we can get into, is, is you know, does there have to be a separation notice and a separation package? Some states require that, some states don't. And what other responsibilities does an employer have at, well, at the end of the employment life cycle, right? Uh, when terminating an employee, what do they have to do? And, and what, do they, what notice do they have to provide? Yeah, that's, that is a big one. And similar to a notice issue, but one that I will mention with termination is if you intend to offer an employee a separation agreement, a severance agreement, whether it's part of a big picture layoff or part of a smaller just individual separation event, there are a ton of state-specific requirements when we start talking about what that agreement should include or should not include, notices, disclosures that come along with that agreement, how much time an employee has to consider that agreement. So uh, just kind of summarizing, I know that this has been a lot and we've just barely scratched the surface on a lot of topics, but but the big six kind of multi-jurisdictional compliance issues we talked about that we'd encourage everybody to make sure they're intentional about thinking through onboarding issues, leave-related issues, wage and hour issues, protective covenant issues, remote work challenges, and then termination or separation related. These are the ones we see come up again and again, just like Groundhog Day. And so with that, thank everybody for joining us. We hope that you found something useful and helps and help with your own compliance initiatives. But Alejandro, Susan, thank you so much for joining me on this one today. And, and if y'all want to say goodbye before we get off, I'll just say once again, thank y'all. Yes, thank you. Yes, thank you, everyone. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.